Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Bart in Washington. Today is Wednesday, January 11th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A top Chinese diplomat arrives in Africa to strengthen cooperation. At AU level, there might be some issues in terms of the request by Africans for China to help on the issues of reform of the United Nations. Botswana loses its sixth soldier in Mozambique mission. Signatories to Sudan's framework agreement continue their deliberations amid opposition from some groups. A cholera outbreak forces the suspension of primary and secondary schools in two of Malawi's big cities. Uganda's constitutional court strikes down a section of the country's notorious computer misuse law. This is a very good and bold step towards uh, liberating freedom of uh, expression, freedom of speech, and the media. And Jackson Vunganyi speaks with the creators of one of the most popular podcasts in Ghana. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. China's new foreign minister, King Gang, has begun a five-nation tour of Africa aimed at boistering Chinese-African ties. King, who had been ambassador to the U.S. until December, will visit African Union headquarters in Ethiopia before traveling to Gabon, Angola, Benin, and Egypt. Analysts say trade and investment are the top priorities for both sides as China and the U.S. compete for influence in Africa. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's Africa News Center in Nairobi. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed welcomed Shingang to Addis Ababa as a Chinese foreign minister began his week-long tour. After visiting African Union headquarters Tuesday, the Chinese foreign minister will go to Angola, Benin, Egypt and Gabon. David Munyai is the head of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. He offers some insight into what Shingang and his hosts will discuss. At AU level, there might be some uh, issues in terms of um, the request by Africans for China to help on the issues of reform of the United Nations. Um, the AU itself is going to get a seat within G20. And then number of other uh, issues within multilateral institutions and China is a permanent member of Security Council. China's investment in Africa is focused on infrastructure and telecommunications. According to the Chinese General Administration of Customs, in the first three months of 2022, trade between China and Africa reached nearly 65 billion a 23% increase from the same period in 2021. Cliff Mboya is a researcher at the Afro-Sino Center of International Relations. He says economic revival will be at the top of most African countries' agenda. What I expect him to address is China-Africa relations post-COVID. You know, We know that China is gradually opening up to the rest of the world and they're trying to invest the post-COVID world, which some of us have already so economic recovery will be key, and you must factor in the fact that there's a lot of renewed interest coming from the U.S. and Europe. So China will want to uh, put its stake uh, in the relationship and just affirm African countries that uh, it is here to stay and just to build on uh, what it has. Western nations have accused China of using massive loans for infrastructure projects to put African countries in debt to Beijing both politically and economically. Rice groups say China also promotes corruption and ignores human rights concerns. 
while seeking access to Africa's natural resources. Monyao says Africa are to blame for the corruption involving big projects in the continent. My blame goes more on Africans, ourselves as Africans. I don't think we have clear laws and, and tough on corruption. The idea of blaming Chinese or blaming Americans on anything, it's not something that I buy into. There are issues, no doubt. Is there corruption in some of Chinese projects? Yes. Is there any corruption in some of American projects on Africa? Yes. How are we, what are we doing? And there is no one that we can say is better than the other. That's my, that's my own view. Last month, the U.S. government hosted African leaders in Washington, where they agreed to support infrastructure projects on the continent, as well as invest in digital transformation, health and telecommunications. Mboya says African nations will see if they can get similar or greater benefits from interaction with Xinjiang and China. So he'll be received well and the African leaders will begin to see what has to offer uh, when it comes to his trip. So this trip, I know it will generate a lot of interest. Uh, the African Union, the leaders who are there, they'll want to establish the personal contact with him just to get an idea of his ideas and his strategy and see how to align themselves uh, with what uh, he'll have to say or what China intends to do going forward. In Egypt, the foreign minister is scheduled to meet with the Secretary General of the Arab League. The visit is set to conclude Saturday. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Signatories to Sudan's framework agreement have continued with deliberations amid opposition from some groups. Officials at the talks say the process is inclusive, the outcome of which could end three years of political deadlock and urgent in a new transitional government. Michael Atit reports for VOA from Khartoum. Various Sudanese political forces who were signatories to the December Framework Agreement continue to discuss issues related to army and security reforms, the Juba Peace Agreement, transitional justice, and dismantling elements of former President Omar al-Bashir's government. Addressing reporters in Khartoum Monday, the spokesman for the civilian coalition, Khalid Omar Yusuf, said the groups have been divided into different committees to draft resolutions on reforms. He said the deliberations will be followed by amendments to the final political agreement to govern Sudan for a two-year transitional period. The resolutions of this conference shall represent opinions of a wider representation of all Sudanese. And this process would be characterized by inclusivity that will also express the opinions of its stakeholders. Some members of the resistance committees and a popular pro-democracy group say they welcome the process. Mohideen Adam, a member of the resistance committee in West Kordofan State, says despite criticism of talks from other groups, he believes the process will end the military's domination of political space in the country. As long as this agreement is going to address some of our demands, we will keep on supporting it. Up to this moment, we don't see any other better option than this agreement. Therefore, we will continue to support it until we achieve our objectives. Some political parties say the process is not inclusive. At a media debate last night, broadcast on Al Hadas TV channel, Mustafa Tambur, a member of a Sudanese democratic bloc, threatened to mobilize people against the process. We have many options, 
and one of the immediate options is our popular grassroots to oppose the framework, which has been born dead since the day one. The African Union, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, and the UN, known as the Trilateral Mechanism, have been mediating in Sudan to try to break the ongoing political deadlock. Ambassador Mohamed Biliyech, who represents the African Union in Sudan, urged the parties to use this opportunity to resolve their differences. This final pace of political process is an opportunity for all Sudanese to exchange opinions and ideas about issues facing this country. It is also an opportunity to reach to a common vision that will be addressed during the remaining transitional period. At a launch of the final phase of the political process on Sunday, Sudanese Army Chief General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan repeated the military's vow to move the country to a civilian-run government. Al-Burhan orchestrated the October 2021 military coup and overthrew the transitional civilian-led government of former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, citing a lack of attention to alleged threats. Michael Atid for VOA News, Khartoum. Botswana has announced the country has lost a sixth soldier in the fight against insurgents in Mozambique. Officials say only one soldier died in combat, while two were killed in a freak accident. Two died in a murder-suicide, and the latest killed himself. Nkundise Dube speaks to analysts on the health and safety risks linked to the conflict and files this report from Haburoni, Botswana. Botswana Defense Force spokesperson Mahosi Mushakhanim said in a recent media statement that the unnamed soldier committed suicide in Cabo Delgado province where African troops are battling Islamist insurgents. Mushakhane says investigations are underway to establish the circumstances surrounding the death. In December, a high-ranking BDF army official killed a female subordinate and injured a colleague before turning a gun on himself. In the same month, the army lost one member in combat while two died due to freak accidents. The manner of death has military experts worried. Retired military officer and army chaplain Richard Mulaufi, who trained on suicide prevention in the United States, says this is not the first time the BDF has faced such challenges. This has happened before. This is not uh, happening for the first time. It's a recurrence of what happened in the late 1980s as there were so many homicides and, 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 and suicides as well. But the military at the time recruited chaplains and I happened to have been privileged to be the first chaplain uh, on board. Mulewufi is of the view that the Botswana Defense Force should recruit more chaplains and psychologists to prepare soldiers in in Cabo Delgado. I would like to urge the military to refocus in this area of training and specifically being able to deal with suicides. It is one of the most frustrating things for the generals to be faced with this situation where they really have no control over the minds and, uh, of, of their troops. Jasmine Opperman, a Johannesburg-based security expert specializing in extremism, says Cabo Delgado is difficult terrain for foreign troops. To add to this complexity, you also sit with the Mozambican government forces and Rwanda deployed in Cabo Delgado, which makes such coordination, intelligence sharing, and the ability to act 
proactively. It presents a highly stressful environment for these soldiers. Velim Popelang is a former PTF soldier now based in the United Kingdom as a security policy expert. As the nation, we, we are alarmed by the incidents which are more to do with uh, suicide than uh, to do with uh, operational incidents. Normally, before uh, we can uh, deploy soldiers or soldiers can be deployed in the type of uh, operations, they will normally have to go through uh, pre-deployment uh, training. And uh, this pre-deployment training will uh, address a number of issues uh, and uh, prepare them as well. Uh, both uh, emotionally, psychologically. Botswana sent 296 soldiers to Capo Delgado in 2021. It is among eight Southern African development community countries participating in the mission to quell violent extremism in the oil-rich region. Kondisitube for VOA News, Haboroni, Botswana. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Botti in Washington. Today is Wednesday, January 11th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ugandan journalists and human rights groups are welcoming a decision by the country's constitutional court scrapping a section of the country's computer misuse law. It pertains to the use of electronic devices to deliberately disturb the peace of others. The court's five justices agreed on Tuesday that Section 25 of the Computer Misuse Act be cancelled because it is vague and poorly defines the actual offense committed. The judges also said the section restricts the inherent freedoms of speech and expression guaranteed under Uganda's constitution. Robert Simpala is executive director of the Human Rights Network for Journalists Uganda and one of the petitioners. He tells me the court decision is a bold step towards liberating freedom of speech and the media, which are important tenets of democracy. He hopes that from now on, the Ugandan government will work to progressively make social media accessible in the remotest corners of the country rather than ban it. The notification speaks to the very fact that uh, the framers of uh, this computer misuse act did not do a thorough job. Uh, they were ill intentioned about freedom of expression and speech, and that they did not take in the views of the public, who then should have informed the legislative process, the drafting process. And now we are very happy. All the five justices of the constitutional court have uh, agreed with us as advocates for press freedom that. Uh, the law was a bad one, was vague, was uh, overly broad, and that did not define the very essence of what a crime it is sought to address. So this is a very good and bold step towards uh, liberating freedom of uh, expression, freedom of speech, and the media. And this is another boost to our efforts to also get, have a secure nullification of uh, Section 24 of the same act, which speaks to harassment on computer, because uh, it's one of the contentious clauses, obnoxious ones in the law, but also is another boost to the Computer Misuse Act as brought by the campus central legislator, Mohamed Yenseleko. The arguments are the same, and our prayers are the same, and we are appealing to the same constitutional court. We hope that the justices will uh, really uh, make a, a, a 
evaluation and analysis of our issues, and I hope liberate freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and the media, which are very, very key tenants of democracy, the rule of law, constitutionalism, and human rights. I know President Museveni signed this law, approved of it. So do you know if the government is going to appeal? Uh, we are not very sure if the government would uh, want to appeal because they have been tight-lipped about the next steps. But we are very confident that uh, even upon an appeal, we will still lower them because uh, there was no dissenting justice of the court. They all consented that uh, the petitioners had merit in all the issues that we brought before the court. So it would only be proper if government would now sit back and look at a progressive legislation that is... Uh, supposed to, you know, grow and nurture the digital revolution in Uganda and encourage access even in the remotest areas as opposed to introducing legislatives that are inhibitive and are restrictive to freedom of expression. The only opportunity that government would use is to engage the public, is to uh, progressively want to encourage people to use productively social media and other platforms as opposed to making it a crime for uh, Ugandans to use those platforms. Is there a punitive action or any reward for the petitioners? Yes, the court has awarded costs to the petitioners, but of course the state might want to appeal just as a way of uh, pushing away or delaying meeting the costs of the petitioners. But that is uh, the danger of um, the hoko way of legislation because now it's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money to compensate the petitioners. We think that next time there should be a further job done. There are so many legislators that are legally grounded who should be brought on board but also take into account the public opinions and views to avoid such scenarios in the future. Robert Simpala is the executive director of the Human Rights Network for Journalists Uganda. You are speaking with us from the capital, Kampala. Authorities in Malawi have suspended primary and secondary schools opening in two big cities following a cholera outbreak that has killed more than 700 people. Steve Kamti-Malaika of Save the Children Humanitarian Operations in Malawi tells viewers Carol Van Dam that nearly half of the dead are children. As of yesterday, we had 21,552 confirmed cases of cholera. And out of this, unfortunately, uh, we have lost about 716 uh, people. And uh, what we have seen in terms of percentage out of the affected, confirmed uh, cases of cholera, about 40% of that are children who have also been um, um, affected by cholera. Over 700. When did this start? When did this cholera outbreak start? Uh, this out, the outbreak uh, started around uh, March. That's when the first uh, uh, case of cholera was confirmed. And uh, it has been there since then. Of course, what we noted was uh, at the very beginning, there were only a few districts. Uh, the country has about eight, uh, 28 districts. And at uh, that time, we had about two districts that were hotspots for cholera, especially in the lower uh, Shire of Malawi, which is in the southern part of the country. So with time, we have seen cholera spreading to other uh, districts, which normally would not consider them as traditional uh, cholera districts per se. So we have been seeing cholera cases increasing. Up until now, it has affected almost the whole country. 
And how many have died since just the beginning of this year? Since the beginning of this year, I may not have the accurate statistics per se, but we have seen increasing numbers, I think, late December and early this year, where we have had districts maybe registering uh, cases over uh, 100 cases in a day. That's a lot. And maybe well, just to indicate that in Malawi, when things are normal per se, we expect cholera in the rain season, which usually runs between November and the, uh, April thereabout. Uh, that's when we normally expect cholera uh, issues. But uh, last year and this year has been quite unique that we have had cholera even during the dry season, which uh, we don't expect uh, cholera. So we have had cholera more or less like throughout the whole year now, almost. So why is that happening? Why is it happening even in the dry season in Malawi? We believe, though at the moment we don't have uh, a particular research that has happened to determine that, but we can still attribute that to maybe issues of climate change, uh, where maybe issues of water scarcity as a result of uh, dryness, and we have seen a lot of trees being cut down, which affects our rainfall pattern. That was Steve Kante Maleka of Save the Children Humanitarian Operations in Malawi. He was speaking to my colleague, Carol Van Dam from Lilongwe. Ghana has one of the most thriving podcast industries on the continent of Africa, with many local content creators producing a variety of shows covering a range of topics. One of the most popular podcasts in Ghana is Sincerity Accra, an award-winning podcast that features conversations on the lives of young urban residents living in the capital, Accra. On his recent trip to Ghana, my colleague Jackson Vunganyi visited the Gold Coast Report Studio where the show is recorded and produced and met with the creators of the podcast. It's hot. It's hot, hot, hot. So there's no AC, right? No. <laughs> Do we pay extra for the AC? Alright. As we are in a trotro, this is a part of a local public transportation here in Accra, Ghana. Uh, I'm with Joseph and Donald, uh, both of them podcasters, creatives uh, in the media space here, cultural space, uh, the movers and the shakers of things, you know, the new young generation <laughs> of Canadians. So this, what we're sitting in right now is a trotro. It's the main mode of transportation for most people living here in Accra. Um, there are two ways to get onto a trotro. You can go to the station, where it's stationary and then you you know, you load it, like load it. They wait for the whole thing to be full before it moves, or you wait at the different bus stops. Because what happens is, when people get off the space, and then you get on, and each trotro has its demarcated area that it's going to. Ooh. So you need to know where you're going and where to stand to get the trotro that's going where you're going. Now, do does each trotro have its own character per se, in the way, in the artwork, in the music it plays? Because I've seen many, you know, African urban centers they have. Is, uh, you know, means of transportation and they try to one-up each other by being different. 
by being creative yeah, in, I mean, in a crowded agency something? I think so. I think honestly, the personalities of the drivers also come to play. Like you can see, we have a little Burberry situation going on yeah. here. Um, most drivers like to have signs at the back of their churches. I know you've seen they have all sorts of quotes. I don't know what inspires the quotes. Um, some of them have like uh, televisions inside and a lot of design. So I think the personality of the drivers really like shows inside the church. Okay. Tell us about Sincerely Accra. Sincerely Accra is Accra's love letter to the world. It's the pulse of the nation. The podcast um, runs on Fox Pops and interviews with pe people of interest, you know. Um, we started it in 2017 to get into conversations that are plaguing young people here in Accra. All sorts of things, you know, nothing is off limits on Sincerely Accra because it's the everyday conversations that we're having with our friends in our, in our homes when we go out to drink. And we just take those conversations and put them on the podcast. And, you know, you throw in a few popular sound bites and my crazy opinion and you have Sincerely Accra. That was VOS Jackson Vunkanyi speaking with the creators of one of Ghana's most popular podcasts, Sincerely Accra. And that's it for this Wednesday, January 11th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming on board with us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, 